Let's turn in our copies of God's Word together to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4, and our focus this evening will be verses 1 and 2. Let's join our hearts together in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping. Bless us now, O God, we pray in our Savior Jesus Christ, that we would drink deeply of his all-sufficient merits for poor sinners such as us. We ask this in his strong name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear believer, as we come to this wondrous passage, taste and see who Jesus Christ is here and see who you are in union with him. We see here, first of all, resurrection life with Christ. Resurrection life with Christ. That's the first part of verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. There Paul is drawing a conclusion based on what he's already said. He showed us at the end of chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, that we died with Christ in his death. Union with Christ in his death means we are no longer determined and regulated by this worldly obligations. The practices and thought patterns of this world are weak and worthless, and union with Christ in his death frees us from the control and from everything that characterizes this old sin-cursed world. And as good as that is, it gets even better. Here at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul draws the conclusion from what he's just said. You, believer, did not just die with Christ in his death. You have been raised with Christ. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross at Calvary, you, believer, died in union with him. And all that his death achieved is for you since you died with him. But Jesus Christ is not dead any longer. He was raised on the third day in imperishability, glory, and power, He now lives by the power of an indestructible life, and he is not merely living, he is life-giving. So when Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb, he brought you with him. That is because as goes Christ, so goes the Christian. When he died, you died with him. But now that he has been raised from the dead, you have been raised from the dead with him, and all that his resurrection achieved is yours. This helps us to appreciate a little more something of the glory of the resurrection. Don't miss here the tense that Paul uses. Not you will be raised with Christ. This is not about future bodily resurrection at Christ's coming. But you have been raised with Christ. This is already accomplished for you and applied to you. This is true of you, believer, in union with Christ 
right now by faith. You have been raised with Him in His resurrection from the dead. So Paul is showing us here not what will happen to us bodily, but what has happened to us on the inside. As Richard Gaffin says so well, at the core of their being, in the deepest recesses of who they are, believers will never be more resurrected than they already are. And Paul here uses a rich word to show us that we have been raised with Christ. This word he uses here in verse 1 presses home to us together resurrection. The point there is inseparability between Christ and the Christian in Christ's resurrection. The thought here in particular is not that Christ was raised for us, but rather that you and I have been raised with Him in His resurrection. It's not merely that we benefit from His resurrection, but that we were included with Him in being raised from the dead. That is the unbreakable bond that the believer has with Jesus Christ. His resurrection is your own resurrection with Him. It's easy to get lost in wondering how all these things can be, how it all works, what it all means. But let's not lose sight of the fact that this is not metaphor, it is real. When you trusted in Christ, that radical change that took place in you came from the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The same power that will eventually bring about the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and new earth, you, believer, have a foretaste of that power within you because you have been raised with Christ. And so, dear believer, let me urge you not to think about these things as intellectual problems to try and solve or as speculations. I urge you instead to worship. The gospel is better than we realize. Don't tone down or explain away the wondrous mysteries we see here. Be in awe of them instead. This is who you are in vital, living, faith union with Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, you've been raised with him. Herman Ritterboss puts it all together for us. As in Christ's death on the cross, the church has died to the powers of sin and the world. In the resurrection of Christ, it has been set at liberty for another in order to live for him under his government for Christ himself. So that there is what it's all about. Union with Christ in his death and resurrection frees me from the bondage of this old sin-cursed world and frees me to fellowship with him in his blessed kingdom right here, right now. So that's the first thing. Resurrection with Christ. Secondly, we see we are to live resurrection life. Live out your resurrection life. That takes us to the command there in verse, in verse 1. Seek the things that are above. So, union with Christ in His resurrection means that we have newness of life in Him, a life that must be lived out. You've been raised with Christ, therefore, live out your resurrection life in Him. This is who you are in Him, so be who you are. So, now that this is true, now that I've been raised with Christ, what must I do? How do I live out that resurrection life that is mine in Christ? Answer there in verse 1, seek the things that are above. Think here about what Paul is doing. Here in verse 1, he's gone from telling us to look back, and now he's telling us to look up. He pointed us back in time to the resurrection of Christ, but here he's pointing us upward to the ascension of Christ. 
That's what the things above are in the rest of verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So at this point, we're not looking at the empty tomb where we've been raised with Christ. We're looking rather to heaven where Christ is enthroned in otherworldly glory. There's a movement here in verse 1 from earth to heaven. Christ himself went from earth to heaven in resurrection and ascension. And because Christ is in heaven, our attention must be not upon earth, but upon the things of heaven. Living out resurrection life then means setting our sights on what is heavenly, not on what is earthly. Even as we remain upon the earth, progressing through our earthly, earthly pilgrimage, our focus is not earth, but heaven. That's the substance of this command in verse 1, seeking heaven and all that is associated with it, being disposed toward heaven, a heavenly-mindedness. Now, it's at this point that the misunderstandings arise. Is Paul telling us that we shouldn't have jobs or care for our families? Is he telling us to abandon social relationships and all activity in our communities? Is he encouraging us to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good? Let me ask you to hold on to those questions for now, and we'll look at them more fully as we move through the passage. For now, just notice what Paul is saying. The Christian's identity is determined by Christ's activity. Christ's resurrection includes your resurrection with him, and Christ's ascension to heaven means you, have, you must keep seeking all that is associated with that realm. Because Christ has been raised, you have been raised, and because he has ascended above, seek the things that are above. It leads us thirdly to think about our heavenly orientation. Our heavenly orientation. There I want to think about what it means in verse 1, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You can see why the things above, the things of heaven, are worthy of seeking, because that is where Christ is. And since Paul has fixed our attention upon heaven, he now shows us in verse 1 what Christ is doing in heaven. He is enthroned at God's right hand. Now think, think about all the, the aspects of that, why it's significant. Think about the right hand. This has nothing to do with being right-handed or left-handed. This is about the imagery of the right hand throughout the Old Testament. To summarize, if you look throughout the Old Testament especially, you'll find that being at someone's right hand is the place of strength, the place of help, of righteousness, honor, wisdom, the place of highest blessing. To be at the right hand means to be honored, glorified, and held in high esteem. Think also about sitting as opposed to standing, that, how that imagery is used in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, the servant stands and the king is seated. Christ is seated because he is king of kings, supreme over all. But more than that, think also not just about the kings, but the priests. Think about Hebrews 10.11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the priests of Israel stand for their work, showing what? That their priesthood and the animal sacrifices they offer can never accomplish redemption. But Christ, Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels 
as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Christ, our final high priest, does not stand but sits in heaven because he has secured an eternal redemption by means of his own precious blood. Christ being seated in heaven means his work is finished and that he's actually accomplished our redemption. So putting all this together, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of David's prophecy in Psalm 110. Like David himself, David's Lord, who would come, would rule as king. But unlike David, David's Lord would come to be a priest forever. Israel had kings and Israel had priests, but David's Lord in Psalm 110 is both priest and king. David could not provide the gift of atonement for his people because he was not a priest. And the priests could not rescue Israel because they weren't kings. But Christ is both. He's the total package. He is seated in heaven both because he reigns over his kingdom as king and because he has secured perfect and full accomplishment of redemption for us in his once and for all sacrifice. Another key element Christ is seated at God's right hand. The one who was forsaken by God has been received into the closest communion with God. Upon earth, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in heaven, Christ was told, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ was abandoned by God upon earth as he suffered damnation, the damnation we deserve for our sins. But Christ was received by God into the highest heavens since he has fully satisfied God's justice for us. Christ being seated at God's right hand in heaven is the outworking of his declaration upon the cross cross that it is finished. It means that our redemption is accomplished. The evil spiritual forces have been disarmed and put to shame. The head of the serpent has been crushed. The strong man is bound and his house has been plundered. It means that Christ's defeat of his enemies is decisive and irreversible, and he, is, and he has his enemies on a leash. It means that he is the risen and exalted Savior of his church, the matchless King of kings and Lord of lords, now and forevermore. So that is all the more reason we are to seek the things that are above. Heaven, those above things, is where our all-sufficient and victorious priest and king is enthroned. Heaven is where he is incessantly worshipped by angels and men as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So he is no longer the helpless baby. He's no longer under the power of death in the grave. He is risen and exalted to the unspeakable glory and majesty and splendor of heaven. And since he is there, we are obligated and privileged as those in union with him to seek the things that are above. Fourthly and finally, we talked about our heavenly orientation. Let's talk now about our earthly aversion. Our earthly aversion. Those two things go together. Our heavenly orientation and our our earthly aversion there in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
So there, the things above are contrasted with the things on earth, clearly showing that the things above are clearly the things of heaven. The command here obviously includes avoiding all that is earthly and zealously pursuing all that is heavenly. Now, let's deal at this point with the misunderstandings we brought up a moment ago. Is Paul telling us to be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good? Well, let's see why he's not saying that. Notice in verse 5, how in verse 5 Paul explains what he means upon the things, means by the things upon earth. What exactly are the things upon earth, the things that we're to avoid? Verse 5, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, things like these. These are the things upon earth that we're to avoid and put to death. So the earthly things here, notice, are whatever is sinful, whatever is against God's law, whatever is contrary to the things above where Christ is. So this contrast between these two realms, the things of heaven and the things of earth, it is an ethical contrast. It is in this ethical contrast that we must avoid earth and pursue heaven because earth is a sin-cursed realm and heaven is a glory-filled, God-centered realm. Think about the history of heaven and earth. Since the first man, Adam, sinned against God, earth is now characterized by sin and death. Think about that opposition that now exists between heaven and earth because of Adam's sin. Heaven is that distinct, created realm where God is glorified and enjoyed for his own sake. Heaven is the realm of ultimate and endless life, light, and righteousness. And think how God gives us throughout his word the earthly images to help us appreciate something of the glory of heaven. Heaven is the house of God, Genesis 28. The paradise of God, Revelation 2. A realm flowing with milk, with, with milk and honey, Exodus 3. A realm adorned with every precious stone and jewel, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, agate, chrysoprase, emerald, carnelian, chrysolite, jacinth, amethyst, pure gold and pearls, Ezekiel 28 and Revelation 21. Heaven is a realm of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, Isaiah 25 and Psalm 63. It is a city where there is a river whose streams gladden the hearts of its citizens, Psalm 46. And it is the house of God where worshipers feast in abundance and God gives them drink from the river of his delights. Psalm 36. So those are images that God has given to show us something of the otherworldly glory of heaven. Because God is king, heaven is a royal court, and because God is the God of glory, heaven is a sacred temple of transcendent glory. In the beginning, God created the visible heavens and earth as a copy of heaven, a miniature version of heaven. In particular, the, the Garden of Eden was especially a shadow of heaven's glory. But when Adam sinned against God, there came a rupture between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are now realms of opposites, ethical opposites. Heaven is the realm where God is central. Earth is the realm where man is central. Heaven is the place of creator worship. Earth is the place of creature worship. Heaven is the realm of righteousness and life. Earth is the realm of sin and death. The devil was cast out of heaven in the beginning for his rebellion against God. 
But earth is the place where the devil rules and prowls as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Heaven is the realm where God is glorified and enjoyed for his own sake. Earth is the realm where God is denied, forgotten, hated, or manipulated for the creature's selfish ends. Heaven is blessed and earth is sin-cursed. That is why Isaiah was wrecked when he saw the glory of heaven and in contrast saw his own sinfulness. And a major feature in Colossians of why heaven is what we are to pursue and set our minds on, as we've seen, heaven is the place where the risen Christ is. That's why we set our minds upon it. Heaven is not heaven because there's no sin or pain or or death. Heaven is heaven because it is the dwelling place of our Savior, our beloved, the one who is chief among 10,000, the one whose love is better than wine. As the one who possesses resurrection life, he now dwells in the realm of that heavenly life. And now that we are in union with this risen and ascended Savior, we are citizens of that heavenly place. Philippians 3.20 We are no longer enslaved to the patterns and practices and lifestyles and ways of thinking that characterize this sin-cursed earth. So, not only did Jesus Christ bring us out of the tomb in his resurrection, more than that, when he ascended into heaven, he took us there with him. Paul brings it out in Ephesians 2. God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Saying, at the very least, we who were far from God because of our sin have now been brought near to God as Christ has taken us to God in heaven itself. Heaven is our home because that's where Christ is. And that means that as long as we are on this earth, we are strangers, pilgrims, just passing through on our way home, our, our way home, and we do not fit in here. The sinful, earthly things do not define us anymore. Our identity is determined by heaven. This comes up in the larger catechism. Larger catechism 53 helps us to see the significance of heaven for our present life on earth. Larger catechism 53. How is Christ exalted in his ascension? Christ was exalted in his ascension, in that having, after his resurrection, often appeared unto and conversed with his apostles, speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and giving them commission to preach the gospel to all nations. Forty days after his resurrection, he, in our nature and as our head, triumphing over enemies, visibly went up into the highest heavens, there to receive gifts for men to raise up our affections there and to prepare a place for us where himself is and shall continue till his second coming at the end of the world. Do you hear the emphasis I gave there? Christ is exalted in his ascension because he raises up our affections there to where he is. Now that Christ has been raised and has ascended to the realm of incessant worship, then you and I, believer, in union with him, are citizens of heaven to live for Christ's sake and glory even while we are, on, we are strangers on this earth. Listen to how Gerhardus Voss puts it, showing how our heavenly orientation 
makes us of the highest earthly good. Voss says, precisely because Christian otherworldliness is inspired by the thought of God and not of self, it involves no danger of monastic withdrawal from the world or indifference to the world. The same thirst for the divine glory, which is the root of all heavenly-mindedness, also compels the consecration of all earthly existence to the promotion of God's kingdom. So in other words, being heavenly-minded will make you of supreme good here on earth as you show a selfish, sin-cursed world what it means to glorify and enjoy the triune God. Whether it's at work or school, family, recreation, or wherever else God has put us, we live our lives in this world as citizens of Christ's kingdom, which is not of this world. We live out the resurrection life that is ours in Christ in allegiance to the holiness of heaven and not to the wickedness of this present evil age. Now let's bring another angle to it. Jesus himself brings out another aspect of what it means to set our minds upon the things of heaven and not the things of earth. Think of when Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Think about how Satan tempted the Lord Jesus. Jesus, you haven't had anything to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. You must be hungry. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Don't live in weakness. Take the easy way out. Don't deny yourself. Indulge yourself. Let me show you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, Jesus. Look how easy and pleasant life is for them. They have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Jesus, you've had a rough go for the past few weeks. Take the easy way out. All this I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So what was the, a through line, a major element of Satan's temptation? Avoid suffering and take it easy. Think about how later on when Jesus explains the necessity of his suffering to the disciples and how they fail to comprehend it. Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Think about this. At this point, Peter has just confessed, just confessed, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus has just commended Peter for his accurate confession. So why does Peter rebuke Jesus for all this talk of suffering and death? Here's why. Peter failed to see that suffering must come first, both for Christ and the Christian, and only then can glory come. That's the order. Suffering, then glory. No shortcuts, no bypassing suffering to go straight to glory. The order is the cross must come first and then only the crown. Peter hears Jesus talk about the necessity of his suffering and crucifixion, and he responds, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're the Christ of the Son of the, Son of the living God. You're not going to suffer. Have you, haven't you read Daniel 7 and the glory that comes to the Son of Man? You're going to have nothing but ease, no suffering. 
Peter thinks he's doing Jesus a favor trying to get him to avoid suffering. But whether he realized it or not, Peter's attempt to get Jesus to avoid suffering was the exact same thing that Satan tried to do as well. Plain and simple, if Jesus follows the advice of Peter in avoiding suffering, no salvation for sinners. Peter failed to see that the exalted Son of Man of Daniel 7 must first be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, to allude to Ritterboss. That's why Jesus responds to Peter as strongly as he does there in Matthew 16. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Same language Paul uses here. In other words, Jesus is saying, Peter, Satan already tried to get me to avoid suffering. He was wrong to do that, and you are as well. If you think I can avoid suffering, or that anyone who belongs to me can avoid suffering, you are earthly-minded and satanically influenced. This, the pathway of suffering, self-denial, and humiliation, that is the only pathway to glory. Peter offered Jesus a post-millennial earthly reward, but thankfully Jesus gives us a greater inheritance of suffering unto heavenly glory instead. So can you see how Jesus and Paul here are telling us to have the same mindset from different angles? What Jesus calls the things of God, Paul here calls the things above, and what Jesus calls the things of man, Paul calls the things upon earth. So to put it all together, whether it is open and outright sin, whether it is a life of ease, of influence, of power, without cross-bearing and weakness, these earthly, man-centered ways of thinking are inappropriate for the citizens of heaven. Positively, to set our minds upon the things of heaven is to be thoroughly and consistently, more and more with each passing day, abiding in and ruled by our risen Savior. It is to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. It is to live out of the newness of life that is ours in His resurrection. It is to turn spontaneously and instinctively to the presence and smile of our Savior as a flower will seek the face of the sun, as Voss put it in one of his sermons. It is to live knowing that everything associated with our heavenly homeland is worth living for, worth suffering for, and worth losing everything for and dying for. It is to live every moment in conscious, back-and-forth communion with Christ, to own Him and be owned by Him in the friendship of His covenant, to glorify and enjoy Him as the highest blessedness and reward conceivable. And so as we close, I recalled an illustration that Sinclair Ferguson gives about a friend of his who is an astronaut. NASA has made provisions for astronauts to be as comfortable as possible while they're up in the space station. But one thing that not even NASA has been able to fix is the constant background headache that astronauts have while they're in space. For weeks and months on end, even with proper nutrition and enough oxygen in the spaceship, an astronaut is always going to have this nagging headache because on some level, the human body knows it doesn't belong in space. So in a similar way, because Christ has been raised and has ascended to heaven, 
the believer is not going to feel at home in this world. The bride will always long to be with her bridegroom. And so as you progress, believer, through your earthly pilgrimage, making your way to your heavenly home, remember that you are in a strange and foreign land. You are a pilgrim and stranger here. Your home is not here, but in heaven. Like our forefathers, press on toward our heavenly city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God and desire that better heavenly country. Hebrews 13, 14. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This earthly wilderness is turned away from God and His glory, characterized by the worship of the creature and destined for judgment. But you, believer, as a citizen of heaven, raised with Christ, have been turned back toward God and for His glory. You love Him for His own sake and are destined for glory at Christ's coming. That means that as long as you make your way through your earthly pilgrimage, you are going to have a holy background headache because like the astronaut in space, you are not home yet. But in the meantime, fix your eyes upon your risen Savior who dwells in heaven and who has opened up the way to heaven for you. Run the race that is set before you and don't lose sight of the finish line. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, acknowledge promote and reflect the glory of your risen and ascended Savior in a darkened world that desperately needs to see him. And may God work within each of our hearts this true heavenly-mindedness to the praise of his glory.